reading the whole chapter. Um, don't worry if you haven't been here in previous weeks. Um, 1 and 2 Samuel is a long story. Um, and it's all about a couple of kings that came to the Israelites. Um, so first we had bad King Saul. And then we had good King David. Um, and everyone's things are going a lot better. Um, but Mike will explain a lot more of where this fits in the story. Uh, but as, as I said before, we're looking at how God's king treats people in order that we might see that he is a God of justice and a God of mercy. Um, so let's read this together. Chapter 21 of 2 Samuel says this. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king, David, called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. So David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you, and how shall I make atonement, that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house, neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And David said, What do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us, so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of uh, plan to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel. Let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she born to Saul, Armani and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai the Mehalathite. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. And the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest, at the beginning of barley harvest. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth, and spread it for herself on the rock. From the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens, and she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them. And on the day the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan. And they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan in the land of Benjamin and Zelah, in the tomb of Kish his father. And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel. And David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines. And David grew weary, 
and Ishbi Benob, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze, and he was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. Babashai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, You shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. After this, there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibachai, the Hushathite, struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants. And there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. And Elhanan, the son of Jeorigim, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was again war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature, who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, twenty-four in number. And he also was descended from the giants. And when he, taught it, and when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. If you'd like to keep your Bibles open, uh, Mike's going to come and speak to us from that chapter. Um, probably for the next... 25 minutes. 25 minutes. Um, so, uh, and then the kids will rejoin us at the end and we'll... Yeah. Great. Uh, so if the kids would like to leave and anyone who's doing Christianity Explored would like to come just to, to the back. So we don't have pictures on the screen. Now, we're going to have a look at that... Uh, chapter that we've read, I guess it would have been really hard for you to listen to that story, because it's not a happy story. And I wonder if I can ask you whether you've ever found the God of the Bible absolutely shocking. Because that's what this story is. You've got seven men being killed instead of one man that did wrong. How could that be fair? And then you have to watch his grief-stricken mum keep birds and animals away from the dead bodies. And apparently God requires all that to be done to fix a famine that was going on. So things started growing and producing crops again. Really? Is God really like that? That's what the Bible says. The PR guys would want us to keep turning the pages and to get to a nicer bit in the Bible. Let's say, take one of the miracles of Jesus and say how God is nice to people. But tonight, we're not going to flick the pages on. We're going to stay with this passage. The reason we've got here, if you're new to our church, is because actually each Sunday we go bit by bit and next Sunday you can see chapter 20... uh, uh, Two is what we're going to be reading. So we're making progress like that. And we've just happened to get to chapter 21. We can't duck it. We've got to have a look at it. We can't let the pages do that. The fingers do the walking. But what we will find out is that there are really hard but helpful things for us to learn about God from this part of the Bible. The first thing to learn about him is that he loves justice. The second thing we will learn about him is that he loves compassion. And the third thing we will learn about him is that his King David is not going to be around for much longer. His rule is limited. Let's start with the first thing, which is that God 
loves justice. Let me tell you the backstory. Actually, you can see it in chapter 1 at the start of that uh, passage that uh, was read. There was a king called Saul. He's the king before David. And he thought he was doing God a favor when he decided to take out a group of people called the Gibeonites, in verse 2, who were not a part of God's people. They were an alien group in uh, Israel and Saul decides to kill them, exterminate them. Now, we've gone through the story of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and we haven't come across this particular time when Saul tried to do that so we don't quite know exactly when it happened but clearly whenever it happened the God of the Bible does strike you as a God who does bring wrong things to light whenever he chooses to do it it's not going to stay underground forever and this wrong that Saul did is now coming to surface with this famine with me so far let me tell you that is a very different God to the God that other people on our estate believe in we might say the God of King Saul well look in those days kings did what they wanted and they got away with murder and why should Saul be any different to the other kings that were around at that time and you get that kind of acceptance there was a person on our estate, a Muslim gentleman, uh, with whom I started having a, uh, an email chat about the Quran. And as I was reading it, I got to a part of the Quran that confused me. There was a man called Kidder who butchered a child with an axe. And so I asked my Muslim friend, what do you make of that? And he said, well, you've got to understand that Kidder was a prophet. And therefore, he was allowed to do things that we would not normally be allowed to do. And I said, are you happy with that? And he said, well, yes, he was a prophet. I said, in which case, I bet you'd be really happy that your kids are not going to go near this prophet. You're not going to take that risk, are you? Ah, but he's a prophet. He can get away with things. Well... Let me tell you, it doesn't work like that with the God of the Bible. Verse 1 will tell you that VIPs are not exempt from murder. They bring blood guilt on themselves. That's what Saul did. Whoever they are, God sees that person as guilty, however important he might happen to be. And uh, Saul... Blot, there is blood guilt on Saul, says the God of the Bible. And he doesn't overlook it either. But it does still leave the question, doesn't it? Why does it have to be settled this way? With the Gibeonites being asked to tell David what should be done to put right the wrong that they had suffered. Why would you give them the choice? Well, just think that through. What conclusions are these foreigners, these people who are not God's people, these Gibeonites, what conclusions are they likely to come to if the king of God's people tries to exterminate them? When they should really have been safe amongst God's people, what conclusions will they come to about God 
if the king of God's people then tries to kill them. Now it's certainly true if you go back to when they first came to live with God's people, those Gibeonites had actually lied to a man called Moses, but Moses had promised that they would be safe, he would let them live. He made a covenant that they should live. And now Saul comes along, and in verse 2, he breaks that covenant. Now what are these foreigners going to be thinking about God and his ability to keep covenants when God's king breaks covenants and nothing happens? So of course God has got to act. Uh, his reputation is on the line. But it still leaves the question, doesn't it? Why is it Saul's sons that have to pay? Well, look, let's first notice that it is Saul's sons. And uh, we'll see that uh, it's not just seven random people chosen out of a crowd that have got to make atonement for what Saul did. In fact, these guys in verse 4 really don't want anybody to die in that kind of way. The Gibeonites say in verse 4, it is not for us to put any man to death in Israel. So they're not after indiscriminate uh, retribution in that kind of way. They only want Saul to pay, no one else. And just as Saul had tried to exterminate them, so there was nothing of them that was left. So they think it is fair for them to exterminate Saul's family so that what he had wanted to do boomerangs back on him. That's how they figure it out. But let me just make the point that this idea of Saul's son dying for what Saul had done is their idea. In other words, this is, if I could put it like this, Gibeonite justice. It's not God's justice. And they want seven sons killed in verse 6. Let seven of his sons be given to us so we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul. They want the sons to make atonement for what the uh, grandfather effectively had done. Sons bridge the generation gap in that way. It's a word that we used for male offspring. And number seven stands the perfect number. So what they're really after is perfect atonement for what Saul had done. But this is Gibeonite justice. This is not God's justice. And also notice one other thing that when David agrees to pay for the covenant breaker, David himself, in verse 7, if you look closely, is a covenant keeper. Because he made a covenant too with Saul's son, Jonathan, to look after his family. So now, in verse 7, he spares Jonathan. He keeps the covenant that he made. And he finds seven other grandchildren instead. The king spared Mephibosheth, the, the, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath the Lord uh, had between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. 
and therefore its other sons. David keeps his covenant. And you might just simply say, why is it still Saul's sons that have to pay the price? And I think the answer is that when you're king, you act as a, in a representative way on behalf of other people. So Saul was the king of Israel, and therefore the whole of the country was involved in the famine. But Saul's sons were especially tied to Saul because they would have gained from his inheritance as king. And therefore it is that group that are particularly bound to Saul that therefore pay for what he had done. They are family, no one else. Now, you've got to explain those different things and I'm not sure I've taken away all the question marks and at the end of our little time together you get a chance to ask questions and make any comments and so please come back to me at that point. But let me just make this point that although this is puzzling justice, although it is shocking justice, although it is belated justice, it is still justice that is being done by God's king in response to what the Gibeonites have asked him to do. Okay? Keep that in mind. But just as the king believes in justice, he also believes in compassion. And that's the second point I want to make. And I think you see that described in this really heartbreaking picture of a mum trying to protect the bodies of, well, two of those children were hers, but she was trying to protect all of them. And she did it for a very long time. I think if you take the timings of harvest and things like that, it could well be 24-7, she was there for two months. And that is heartbreaking to see a mother acting in that way and showing her love for her children in that way. And I think it must have been such a big time because David gets to hear about it and he wouldn't have simply uh, heard about it if she'd just done a passing thing and then gone home again. And the fact that David is so moved to act after he'd heard about what she'd done shows that actually what she'd done was hugely significant and it triggers enormous compassion in David as well. So he goes and makes sure that their bodies and the bodies of the whole family that were killed by other people in another place, that all those bodies are brought together and given a decent family burial. He does that because he has real compassion on uh, what has happened. And I want to point out at the bottom of the page in verse 14 that it is this compassion that now God uses to unlock the famine. It's at this point that you read, after that God responded to the plea for the land. In other words, it's because of this kindness, because of this compassion that he now sees in the land, that he is now able to uh, unlock uh, the blessings of the land back into flow again. And you see that as a result of David's compassion and what he did at the end of verse 14.
Now remember what we've said again and again and again as we've gone through these letters, uh, uh, through these books. David is God's Messiah of the Old Testament. He is God's special anointed king of the Old Testament. And he is there to get us ready to meet God's anointed king, his greater son, the Lord Jesus, is going to be God's anointed king of the New Testament. And David is there to show us what God and his king are like. And God's king, when you put the two together, as we've seen before in other bits of 2, of two Samuel, that there are two things about God that always goes together. You never see one without the other. You will always see God being God, passionately in uh, uh, favor of justice, and equally always side by side. You will never see the justice of God without the compassion of God. Every story about God's justice, you will see the two together, and you will see it in this part uh, of the Bible as well, in 2 Samuel chapter 21. So, God believes in justice, God believes in compassion, but David is a passing king. His kingdom is not for keeps. He's just the king that gets us ready for the, the greater king, whose uh, kingdom lasts. And you see in this chapter that David is now beginning to uh, find his limitations. So he is as a king over the whole of the country, still unable. God's king he may be, but he still cannot do anything about the famine to make it stop. And he is unable to also save his people from battle in uh, chapter 21 verses 15 and 16. And so therefore you uh, see over the page that uh, battle begins with the Philistines again. David went again and this time well, he is getting weary. And this time, someone has got to step in and save him because he is vulnerable and tired. And everyone can recognize that his fighting days are over. And yet his kingdom is very secure still because his enemies aren't not able to overcome his servants in verse 22. And so these four were descended from the giants. They were fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. So there's still something in the victory of this king that is shared with his people because his servants still win big battles uh, under him. But we might just simply say, well, okay, so that means that David really isn't here for a long time. Why didn't we do what we want to do at the start, which is to keep the pages flicking over until we get to Jesus and the good times are back again? Why did we have to stop at this chapter for so long? I want to suggest there are three lessons we can learn from it this evening. Let me explain how those three lessons might work to three different groups of people. Let me start with people who might be new to Christianity. And if you're something who's new to, someone who's new to the Bible, this shocking description of justice that we see in the Bible is important for us to read tonight because honestly, you and I ought to be shocked. The Bible wants to shock us. We need to be shocked at the way God's justice works. The idea of substitutes dying for the sins of someone else is shockingly unfair. 
I'm hoping you were shocked by that. But in this case, there's a family connection. Wouldn't it be even more shocking if the victim who dies is entirely unrelated? Well, hold that thought because that's exactly what Jesus did when he died on the cross. That should have been us. We've all broken the covenant of God in the sense that we've done things that God has not wanted us to do. And what Jesus did was he hung on the cross to pay for the covenant breakers, like these men did in the story. And he didn't do it for any covenant breaking that he did. He was perfectly a covenant keeper, like King David was. When he met people like the Gibeonites, he looked after them really well. He didn't try and exterminate them. So there was nothing that he did that needed this kind of atonement or death. But what we're being told in this story is a little preview of what God did when he put his own son through what these seven men suffered to pay full atonement. Not because there was a number, but because the son was perfect and he could pay fully for what others had done. And I'm hoping, therefore, that you go from being shocked that someone, seven people had to die in place of Saul, that you go to being shocked that God would put his own son through that just for you. Because you and me, as I said before, we're covenant breakers. We don't keep what God has said. We don't honor what God has, uh, uh, in the way God wanted us to live. And God is willing to put his own son in our place to take that punishment. That should shock us. But it shouldn't shock us to put us off God. It should shock us into a new love for him, if you've never felt that love before. So I want to suggest, if you're someone who's new to Christianity, that's a great way to be shocked and to respond in gratitude to God that he would do such a thing and pay such a price for the covenant breaker that is you and me. But the second group I want to perhaps talk about and talk to are those of us who might have been going to church. And we might regard ourselves as people who have some zeal for God. And it may be that we feel that at least we have a bit more zeal than people who don't identify with God the way we do. So we might have that impression of ourselves as being in some way zealous. At that point, I'm hoping that danger bells begin to ring in our heads because you notice that Saul, in verse 2, had a zeal when he did what he did. So the king called Gibeonites and spoke to them, and the Gibeonites, uh, 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 Saul had strike, that's right, on top of page 273, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal. So what you're finding here is someone with a great amount of religious zeal but has no understanding of how God works. And let me tell you that 
religious zeal without that knowledge of what God is really like always leads to more harm than good. Look, take any example of religious zeal at the moment, as someone I think was talking earlier in our service, we are in the middle of Ramadan, which is a great religious zealous fast. Actually, I didn't think I, I'm sure it is a fast because it's not really a fast, is it? You just delay or bring forward, you just eat at, at different times that are frankly more unhealthy for you. And some of us told me over the breakfast table this morning, we weren't talking about this passage, but they're working with someone who's a, a Muslim friend who comes to work now really, really tired and unable to fully uh, function because he's been waking up that early in the morning to get his breakfast and eat his food. So there's great zeal, but it's not doing anyone any favors. And there's tiredness, and frankly, it doesn't do you any good to eat at 3 o'clock in the morning and something like 10 o'clock at night. It's not helpful to the way people work. But let's not just throw stones at Muslims. I mean, we Christians do zealous things. What about the, the all-night prayer meeting to exact from God a season of blessing? Well, it's zeal all right, but has God ever wanted us to do that thing? Has he ever told us that that's what he wants us to do in the Bible? No, we say that that's a zealous thing to do, and we do, and then what happens when you pray all night and you don't sleep? You just get cranky with people the next day, don't you? Zeal without knowledge is always going to hurt people more than do good to them. And there are lots of ways in which we can think we're serving God with zeal, but the way we do them show that we don't really know what God is like. And uh, we find that we're not helpful to other people. We're just zealous, but really our relationships suffer in the process. And I want to suggest actually us church people can be in danger of doing that and we need to be careful and uh, to see how close to Saul we are when uh, we get too zealous without being informed about uh, what God is like. In the end, it was the Pharisees in the time of Jesus who were full of zeal for God and killed the Messiah without understanding what God was like. Be careful. Uh, <clears throat> the Bible uh, tells us that God doesn't forget things when he counts them, including religious zeal, and he counts it wrong. And he comes and he wants atonement for what was done. But then, Leslie, let me finish by just talking to someone here who might be a, a real believer. And it may be that you're a real believer and it's pretty tough for you at the moment. In fact, you could almost describe life as being a bit of a famine. I'm saying that you can sometimes make that word famine fit the hardships that we're going through because when you're in famine, what that really means is that life is not working for you as it should. That's what a famine is, isn't it? And it can take out your joy because it brings in anxiety and uh, it brings in question marks about God and his care for you. And I want to suggest to you that when you have 
that season of famine, if I might put it like that and describe it that way, it makes a, real, a really helpful thing for us to be shocked once again with the way that God made atonement for us. And that secures us in our understanding that God really loves us, whatever the circumstances of life might be like for us at the moment. Come back to being shocked at the atonement. Come back to be shocked at the way God loves you so incredibly much that he would even let his son go through what these seven men did. These stories in the Bible are there to help us to appreciate the Lord Jesus. These seven pictures, it's a colorful story. It's like us getting help from the Bible to color in the picture of what Jesus did for us so that we can take it home in a way that is more vivid in our minds and not doubt his love when the tough times come. It's immense to know that you are loved by a God who is willing to put his own son through what these seven men did just for you, a covenant breaker, to come to know his uh, care and protection. And you can trust a God like that when you're going through a time of famine, even if you don't snap your fingers and God doesn't answer your prayer instantly in that way. And because of that atonement that he made, because of his justice and his compassion, the thing that we can always live knowing with confidence is that the famine will only be temporary. In this uh, story, uh, the famine is a picture of creation holding back until evil is paid for. And the Bible talks about the new creation working well again because Jesus satisfied God, both God's anger and his compassion. And because Jesus did that, there will come a time when the new creation will work in, the way, in a better way than the original creation in its best days never did. So it's really, really important when you go through a famine, first remember uh, the uh, shocking love of God for you in the atonement and also to remember the great promise that when God sees justice and compassion together, he will one day bring new creation into its amazing uh, um, uh, new life and uh, restore things to where he made them to be in the first place. So I think it's really important for us to always, in that way, keep the cross and the new creation together. It's not just that God made atonement. It is that he has a whole new world waiting to bless us because of what that atonement meant. Try and keep those two things together. Even though tomorrow's Monday morning, and if the famine hasn't struck, it might come to your office desk then. I can't guarantee you a perfect week, but I can tell you this much. If you're one of God's people, God loves you so much, and that there will be a new creation, and he makes that promise because of what his son did. But let's have a moment where we uh, talk to God about that. 
Uh, normally what we do is we keep a moment of quiet and then allow you to talk to God in the light of what you've just heard. Maybe you're someone who wants to say, Lord, help me to be shocked by your love for me, that I might have a new love for you. You might like to pray that prayer. You might want to pray the prayer, Lord, please stop me from being zealous, but in a way that hurts other people. I don't like the way my life is doing that. Talk to God in that way. Maybe that you need God to help you to understand that you love him through the famine and hang on to the promise. Well, let's talk to God quietly and then after a minute I'll pray and we'll take questions and answers after that. Well, let me pray and then we'll talk to each other. Father in heaven, this is a shocking read tonight and yet it is designed to shock us into understanding a little bit more about your love. Please help us to uh, love all that Jesus achieved in his perfect atonement on the cross. Help us to use this story to come back praising you again and again this week for that wonderful way in which your son did what these seven men did. Thank you for freeing us up and uh, freeing the future up from the effects of uh, sin in your world. And please fill uh, our hearts with uh, a new trust for the Lord Jesus because of his love and because of his promise. Help us to keep those two things together in this new week. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.